Welcome to Health Data Talks, where industry experts offer bite-sized tips and trends for managing legacy data. Thanks for joining us. I'm Shannon Larkin from Harmony Healthcare IT, and today I'm talking to Dave Navarro, who is Harmony Healthcare IT's Senior Director of Data Science. Thanks for being here, Dave. Thanks for the invite, Shannon, and happy to be here. Awesome. So at Harmony, we manage data for healthcare organizations. And most of the time, that means we're extracting and migrating and storing records. But we're all preparing for the 21st Century Cures Act. And I think now that activation of data that we're storing is becoming even more important, you know, just how we're readying the data for interoperability. So that's our topic for today. And to get started, Dave, could you just introduce yourself and give us a little bit about your background? Sure. As you mentioned earlier, Shannon, I'm the Senior Director of Data Science here at Harmony. I personally like to add interoperability at the end of that because I am doing a whole lot of interoperability work and that is my background. Here at Harmony, my focus is on analyzing the data that we prepare to archive and making sure we store it in a way that preserves its original content. We also want to store it in a way that's easily accessible and consumable via industry-adopted methods. Sure. Yeah. And then 20 years in the industry is a lot. So what are some of the things that you would say you've learned that prepare you to do what you just described that you're setting out to do? Sure. I think most of our listeners know that when it comes to HIT data, the landscape is vast and complex. It takes a full immersion into the clinical workflow and technology to really build something out that's successful to store clinical data, transmit it, and make it interoperable. Over the past 20 years, I've worked in integrating data via HL7 version 2, HL7 CDA, exchanging data via IHE protocols and the eHealth Exchange, and taking part in ONC activities, proof of concepts. So that's really my background. And we're always looking at least Everything that I've worked on, we're always looking for an industry standard to leverage when working with health data. One thing that I've realized, if you're storing the data, it's not the end-all, the be-all. Somebody eventually is going to want that data later on in the process. So you want to apply a, a standard when storing it so that a standard can be applied when you're trying to access that data later. That's right. I mean, someone's going to need it or want it. So let's pivot then to recent events because... I know that you recently attended the meetings that were hosted by the Office of the National Coordinator, and I think those were largely focused on interoperability. Is that right? Yeah, you're correct. So if you guys weren't able to attend the ONC meetings, they were full of great information. This year, they were pieced out into two parts. The first were education sessions held at the beginning of February, and those were really important because they gave an overall view of where the ONC was going with the cures information blocking regulations, TEFCA, which is a trusted exchange framework and common agreement, which is looking to build a nationwide health information exchange, data content standards such as USCDI. So it was really, part one was really setting the stage for part two. So you're looking at a lot of those standards. And then in in part two, which was held here in April. They held two full days of breakout sessions and panel discussions. It was really applying the knowledge from part one and how people are applying those regulations to different parts of the healthcare sector. 
the government interoperability plan, long-term care interoperability, obstetrics, and other clinical domains. There was a lot of focus on the 21st Century Cures Act and the information blocking provision. That sounds like a good way to structure it, that they kind of set the foundation first and then delved into more panel discussions and more content in part two. So where did they take that content in part two of the meeting? Well, really, they were, Shannon, they were mostly in panel sessions. So the first opening remarks, I will tell you, Javier Becerra, the secretary of the Department of Human and Health and Services, he gave an excellent opening remarks along with Mickey Tripathi, the National Coordinator for Health. Really, the focus was information blocking and then building out a nationwide health information network. The keys here were health IT developers. We need to create open architectures on the technology side, and they'll take care of the policy side. So ONC enacts policies built with the expectations that all systems will be able to interact with each other. So a lot of it was focused on the interaction between systems and interoperability. There were a couple of sessions. One in particular was accelerating the incorporation of real-world health evidence into research. So there was a lot of focus that went on towards interoperability during the COVID-19 pandemic. And there were real-life scenarios where there was barriers to access data, move that data, normalize that data in a timely fashion so that research could be done on that. This group presentation indicated that they had thousands of investigators that were manually sifting through data to normalize the data and put it into a common model to make it interoperable. So it was really interesting. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I also heard you mention obstetrics. What was covered in terms of maternal health or that area? Sure. You know, it seems a little odd that maybe me being a health data archive vendor that I would attend this particular session, but every session really focused on the data silos. And that has always existed within the maternal health side of things. Certainly the fragmentation of care between OB offices and inpatient facilities was the highlight of this. It's hard to believe that we're here in 2022 and the OB team still cannot share all the data from outpatient to an inpatient setting when a mother goes to deliver and then care afterwards. So the one takeaway from that session is all the moderators, presenters, and attendees were all hoping for a push and adoption of the FIRE standard. They really would like to see FIRE adopted so the inpatient system can query the outpatient system and you can have a full patient record in obstetrics. Yeah, so I think it makes sense now to just talk about FIRE and the standard. Just kind of fill us in on that a little bit. Sure. So the one theme across all of these panel discussions was interoperability. And what I come away with is everything is on FIRE, and if it not, it should be. Sounds a little cheesy, but it's true. So FIRE profiles, if you're not familiar with them, that's where all the new current interoperability is focused. So another session that I attended was an example from Missouri, long-term post-acute care, which is often left out of the integrated health space. They're actually applying FIRE 
and have a program where they're mapping all of their service plans to fire using a specific fire implementation guide. They're the first ones to try this. And they're really excited on how that level of care can move from the long-term care space back to the inpatient space and then back to the long-term care space. So they're trying to solve that with fire. Interesting. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of innovation for data exchange that is focused on this fire standard. So what would you say are some of the recommendations you would have for our audience concerning that standard? First off, I would say become familiar with the fire standard, Shannon. You don't have to be a programmer. Sometimes non-programmers are a little leery about learning these standards. You certainly don't have to be a programmer to understand the FHIR standard. In my opinion, it's much easier to understand than previous standards put out by HL7. Specifically, if you're familiar with the CCD specification, I think it's a whole, it's better organized and easier to understand. If you need some help, there's plenty of resources out there. If this is an open standard, can be adopted and used by anyone. There's, there's no secrecy behind it. So if you Google healthit.gov, there's a great fire fact sheet. Google healthit.fire fact sheet. It's a great summary for what fire is. It introduces you to what a fire resource is, the version history and maturity, and then what APIs are with application programming interfaces. HL7.org is another great site where you can research the FHIR standard and figure out how it may apply. The biggest thing that folks leave out are also the implementation guides. So if you look for those FHIR implementation guides on the FHIR website, those really help and they, they really show you if you're trying to move lab results, if you're trying to move patient management information system, chances are there's a fire guide that tells you exactly what transactions you should be using and how to implement those workflows. Perfect. That sounds like a lot of references so that we can all just get to know fire a little bit more. That's great. But let's go beyond fire. So what about the Cures Act in general and information blocking provisions? Talk to us about that. Yeah, I think fire is really being driven By the 21st Century Cures Act, as most of our audience knows, 21st Century Cures Act consists of a couple of different provisions. One of those is the information blocking provision. Beginning last year of April, the ONC said that you should allow a patient to see data that was constrained by the U.S. CDI standard. That's the United States core data for interoperability. It's a couple of data elements that say baseline data elements that vendors and providers should make interoperable. So a lot of this fire adoption is being driven by the information blocking provision. What's the easiest way to make data available via US CDI is through fire resources. As I mentioned before, there's an implementation guide specifically for the US CDI. So there's a fire implementation guide for that. Okay, so that's a lot of good reference points between the healthit.gov, the hl7.org, and then these implementation guides you're talking about. So there's a lot of places where we can go to learn more about FHIR. But beyond that, maybe we could now shift to the 21st Century Cures Act and the information blocking provision. Talk to us about that a little bit. Sure. The 21st Century Cures Act, I see, is really pushing FHIR adoption. So The provision that you mentioned, which is the information blocking provision, Shannon, it's really aimed toward getting patients 
all of their information in a timely fashion, in a format that is easily computable. So when you look at the standards that are currently out there, the way we do that is the adoption of FIRE transactions. Another provision in the Cures Act is the adoption of certified health information technology. When you start looking at those systems who've adopted certified health information technology, a big portion of that is the adoption of the FIRE standard. So really the 21st century's Cures Act is driving that FIRE adoption. And I think the expectation is that most health information systems will have adopted that standard and make interoperability, you know, a little easier going forward. It seems like healthcare is really still largely existing in data silos. Do you see that as being problematic? Yeah, we've been talking about data silos at least for the past 20 years that I'm aware of, and it's Mm -hmm. still a problem. I think it's evident with the COVID-19 pandemic and the session I attended where they were trying to do research on real-time data because we lacked research. COVID-19 was a new virus. The monumental task of gathering data like data but from different systems that aren't inoperable was a huge task. This research institute had to have thousands of bodies to actually gather the data, normalize it, and and put it in a way that it could be analyzed. So certainly data silos are still a problem. And then going back to the Cures Act, the Cures Act is really attempting to remedy this problem through things like the information blocking rule. So not only is data not available to patients, it's also not available to other systems and other research institutes and those trying to create a comprehensive patient record. So I would think that most folks, if you're not familiar with the Cures Act, certainly make sure you're compliant with the information blocking rules and then also look in to see what certified health information technology says on how you should make data available. Okay, and where I'd like to go next with the Cures Act is just to think about legacy data. You know, we were just talking about data silos, and I immediately think of legacy data stores uh, that many of our clients have. So we're working with clients every day to decommission those systems and consolidate that legacy data. So my question is, what are you hearing from provider organizations about the impact of the 21st Century Cures Act? and what impact that will have on legacy data. Sure. What I'm hearing is that ancillary systems are important. So a historical data archive is an ancillary system. It's as important as the radiology system, the lab system, the dictation system. All of that data, number one, needs to be available for patient care, but number two, needs to be compliant with the data blocking rules. So if a patient requests all of their records from an organization, the organization is obligated to attempt to give them all the information that they have. When you have a data archive out there and you're making clinical decisions based upon the data in the archive, you want to make that data accessible, you know, to make those clinical decisions, but then you also need to provide that data for the patient. So it's important for organizations to define what that data set looks like and make sure that they are in compliance with any data blocking regulations that are in place. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting as we continue to talk to provider organizations to see just how far back they'll go or will be able to go when a consumer requests their records. So thank you for making that connection to the legacy data. I also think it's very important. 
So the ONC meetings sound like they offered you a lot of interesting content, but if someone missed those sessions, is there a place where they can access those materials? Yeah. Healthit.gov is one of my go-to sites for a lot of things, specifically the ONC national meetings this year. You can find, if you go to healthit.gov, the ONC national meeting is forefront. It's on the first page there. If it happens to move, you can search for it within that website. But the first sessions, number one that occurred earlier this year is there. And you can watch those video or recorded videos. And they most recently put up session two. And there's about 19 different sessions for you to go over on healthit.gov for the ONC national meeting. It's really good information. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. I'm sure that'll be helpful for many. Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. It just seems like an exciting time. I think we've both been in healthcare for decades, and it seems like interoperability has been talked about that entire time. But I think with the Cures Act and these meetings that the ONC has hosted, we're really pushing and creating some new energy. And I feel like we'll see some meaningful momentum. So thanks for joining and sharing that content with us. Oh, thanks for having me. And you're correct. I mean, we've been doing this for 20 plus years trying to get interoperability. And now we're seeing the fruition of everybody's work coming together with fire and interoperability in the 21st Century's Cures Act. So it's an exciting time. Exciting for sure. And to our audience, thanks for listening today. Be sure to join us next time for more meaningful discussion around the management of health data. That's it for this session of Health Data Talks. Check out helpful resources at HarmonyHIT.com and follow us in your favorite podcast app to catch future episodes. We'll see you next time.